Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So thank you for having me here. And um, I, I think I've been here, but not for a while, maybe three, three years ago or something. Was anybody here when I was here? Yeah? Was that three years ago? Maybe longer. <laughs> um, so because we're a small group, this doesn't have to be formal in any way. I have a few things that I have contemplated talking about. And um, and as I'm speaking, if anything arises that you want to ask questions about or take in another direction, please do. So we can really treat this more as a discussion or a dialogue than as you sort of receiving some kind of philosophy. And um, the subject that I was going to speak about uh, was sort of the, is was supposed to be the basics of yoga philosophy, something that you can take with you in terms of your own practice, and also, I think you're all teaching, right? Um, something you can incorporate when you're sharing these teachings and these practices with other people. Um, and as I was coming here, I was thinking it might be just as interesting to talk not just about what yoga philosophy might be, per se, but also what philosophy actually is and what the point of exploring yoga philosophy is. Um, so maybe we can do both. I hope we can do both. Any questions about that so far? And does anybody have any requests yet of something they really want to cover? It's okay if you do. <laughs> okay. Sure. You mean, is there a God or isn't there a God? <laughs> yeah, I was half being a prankster. Kind of, sure. But kind of, yeah, all those unanswerable questions. Yeah. Um. I'm going to start with a little quote, and um, this quote is from the Charaka Samhita, so we're not sure when this was written, but maybe sometime around in the third century of this era. So um, Charaka, by the way, the word Charaka means um, a wandering 
you can't really translate it in English, but something like a wandering investigator. Or some people translate it as a kind of um, a homeless scholar, which is kind of interesting to contemplate, because a homeless scholar or a homeless investigator is not just somebody who doesn't have a home, but also refers to someone who doesn't have an investment in a particular position. Right? You're not going about looking at something so that it can either um, agree with or negate your worldview or your self-view, which are one and the same. Um, and this is also the oldest text um, that was written on Ayurveda, or one of the first large works on Ayurveda. Um, and it happens to be one of my favorite quotes in Indian philosophy. Do not let yourselves become broiled in complex arguments and counter-arguments. Do not let yourself pretend that the truth is obvious and easy to attain if you would just adhere to a single philosophical position. By your clever argumentation, you will all end up going around in circles. Like a person sitting on an oil press that moves around and around. Free yourself from simplistic bias and search for the truth dispassionately. Search for the truth dispassionately. Or search for the truth without attachment to a viewpoint. So it's interesting here. We, we came together tonight to sit down and talk together and listen. And as I ask you to sit down and notice your breathing... The first thing we probably notice is sound, sound of the traffic going by outside, the temperature here, the feel of your body right now, the state of the mind. Maybe your mind is very receptive tonight, or maybe you have a lot of ideas about what it is we're going to do or what you're going to get out of it. Um, And just to notice how within all those different fields, within the field of sound, within the field of body, within the field of mind, that there are certain objects that we cling to. There are certain sounds that are pleasurable, and there are other sounds come by that are just a distraction. And so, in a way, it's hard to pay attention to what's actually happening, because we have all of these preferences. We have these ideas that, oh, this room needs to be peaceful and still, And so this particular sound is conducive to peacefulness. And this other particular sound is a distraction. As opposed to seeing that what arises as a distraction is just a category in the mind, because it doesn't have inherently built into it distraction. That's, That's the mind taking a sound, for example, via the ear organ, and superimposing on that sound that it's a distraction, that it shouldn't be in this field of awareness. I don't want it. And so it's hard to be a wandering investigator because it's hard to investigate what's happening in present experience because we have so many ideas. We have so many perspectives. I spent the afternoon yesterday at a march at Queen's Park protesting um, war. 
And it's amazing going to a march that's so public, like at Queen's Park, because everybody shows up. Not just the cops and their horses and so on, but the Communist Party and the three different versions of communism and the <laughs> anti-capitalist people. And, and actually, we went because we wanted to protest the tar sands. And so we went with, you know, little placards we put on our bicycle uh, saying, you know, um, stop the tar sands. People would say, oh, but this is a anti-war rally. <laughs> And the interesting thing is that suddenly you're at the anti-war rally and you're talking about the tar sands and it's very easy to make the connections between them. And it's easy to make the connections because something happens when we're open where we can learn something. And it's hard to learn something when we have so many preconceptions about things. So how do we practice in such a way that we're, we're opening up to this ability to look clearly at the nature of how things are and not just at how we want things to be and how we need them to be. And in a way, one of the important reasons for studying the content of yoga philosophy, in my opinion, is because it seems what's happening now in the yoga community, and if you guys weren't teachers, I probably wouldn't say this in public, but is that there's very little understanding of the nuances and the complexity and how demanding yoga, teach, yoga teaching is. These teachings are asking us to practice renunciation. And renunciation not just of uh, greed or anger, but really renunciation of every view we have in mind that we cling to that prevents intimacy, that prevents deep investigation. And that's a tremendous thing to ask. But what tends to happen is that we start only exploring the superficial aspects of the form, and instead of actually allowing the form to start to work on our lives, we then just superimpose all of our ideas about yoga onto the form so that yoga fits our lifestyle. And that's why I hope as we're talking about some of the, even some of the complexity of some of the teachings that we're going to look at tonight, that you ask questions so that we really start to understand how this might work in your life, so that it's not just what we think philosophy is, which tends to be kind of intellectual speculation about things, but rather a deep investigation into the nature of how things are, not what you think they are. So I'll read that one more time. Do not let yourselves become broiled in complex arguments and counter-arguments. Do not let yourself pretend that the truth is obvious and easy to attain if one adheres to a single philosophical position. By your clever argumentation, you will all end up going in circles, like a person sitting on an oil press that moves round and round. Free yourself from simplistic bias and search for the truth without attachment. 
Does anybody have any comments about that little passage? Can we turn the lights up a tiny bit just so I can see all your faces as the light changes? How many of you have any? How did that strike you? Was there anything that? One thing uh, <coughs> that struck me was the whole concept of the, the truth not being simple or not being mm-hmm. simplistic. Mm-hmm. Because to me, the understanding of the truth is that it, it is simple. It's mm-hmm. just it's right there, you know, mm-hmm. just around the corner. Mm-hmm. But we don't, you know. And turn it into this bigger thing than it is. Right. But I see it as simple, but because I feel like when the truth, whatever that is, gets revealed, it's like, oh, that's what it is. You know, it's going to be one of those situations. You know, oh, it was right there the whole time, right in front of my face. Yeah. I never saw it until now. Yes. So I'm just trying to understand what they mean in that part mm-hmm. for the truth not being simplistic. Free yourself from simplistic bias. Mm. Okay. What would that mean? What's meant by simplistic bias? Um, it's easy to attach on to So you're there, yeah. and what's explain that? Right. So there's the philosophy out there, and I'm here. So in a way, it's poking at that, that that right there is also simplistic bias. That there has to be an idea that I exist here. And philosophy, or this idea, or the truth. So so for you, we would say the simplistic bias would be that there is the truth. And it's around the corner. So the truth isn't here what I'm looking at now, the truth is hidden around the corner. Mm. And you're suggesting that I exist mm. and that the truth is somewhere other than here. Mm-hmm. So there's a similarity between your perspectives. It's both separating us from the truth, though. Separating us from the truth? Uh-huh. Which is probably the revelation that becomes that it's not separate. Uh-huh. <laughs> Well, you know, most of the time when we start talking about spirituality, or we, or even if we use the term religion, um, we associate to religion um, some kind of spirit or soul or some kind of supernatural understanding. So an example would be that hidden inside the tree is the spirit of the tree or the soul of the tree or hidden behind the clouds is heaven, or hidden inside your body is the essence of the body. Or people now, I think, use the word core in the same way. Like, the core 
and then we get this mental image that there is a core in the body somewhere. And then you have an idea that there's a thing that exists inside, but you can't find it. So there's a me that's separated from the core. The problem in creating a center is that you can't ever find the center because everything is center. The mind has to make a box or a circle in order to find the center of the circle. But everything is the center. Uh-huh. Don't you think we're kind of missing a perception because because that's how our minds work. I mean, we can think big, big, big universe, big, 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 but we we can't exactly think of the end of it. But we can't. We we got to put an end to it because we can't think not of the end. Right. Because we can't. So where do you put the end? I'm missing a a fifth sense. But again, that's that idea that we're missing something now, or your sense that something's hidden right now. What is in our assumption that the truth is hidden somewhere? That's an assumption. That's that's a simplistic bias, if you will. That whatever the truth is, it's hidden. It's not this. It's hidden. Could it also be a simplistic bias that it's not hidden? Could it be a simplistic bias that it's not hidden? If if that's a philosophical position, I would say it's a simplistic bias. But that's not the one that came out here. The one that's come out is that it's hidden. So we could say we need to investigate the other side of that. If it's an axis, we have to look at the other end. Um, But I'd say, first of all, that most of the time we engage in spiritual um, investigation with the assumption that the truth is hidden. That it's either so deep inside me that I just can't see it, or that it's something to be attained after a lot of practice. And then I'm going to find it and be able to reside in it. So the word philosophy in Sanskrit is darshana. Um, you might know a word that's similar, which is drishti. Um, drish means to see. So it's a nice way of understanding the word philosophy as um, uh, learning a way to see. And this isn't just physically seeing with your eyes, but a kind of more poetic sense. Of how do we look? How do we see? Can we see? What do we see? And one of the ways that uh, 
you can summarize the teachings of yoga is that nothing is hidden. Nothing's hidden. This is it. Look around. This is it. These sounds, why would you want to get rid of them? Or this body. This body is sacred. So let's work with this body. But then we start to see that we can't just work with the body because the mind is so distracted that we can't actually be present with what's happening in the body. Or we can't really study the nature of sound because we're all caught up in our ideas about what sound we can hear and how we want certain sounds to be manipulated. And, you know, it's kind of like the mind is just like one of those iPods. And like, just like, as if you could program your whole day like you program your iPod. It's interesting at our local video store, the person who owns the store was saying that people don't come in anymore between the ages of 15 and 25. And it's not because they're not watching films or that they're downloading films on the internet, but it's that they don't watch the entire film. That age group tends to not watch entire films. And you see this right with the way we use music now is it's almost like we just listen for bites, sound bites within a song even. And then we're off to the next song. I mean, sometimes with iPods now, we don't even listen to whole albums or what an artist wanted an album to be. It's whether the song catches, gives us pleasure. I have friends who make music for a living, and some of the people who make pop music were telling me that Um, nowadays the record company wants you to cut to the chorus right after the first verse. So if you have a second verse, they'll cut the song so that, you know, because often choruses in pop music used to come after the second verse or the third verse, but now always after the first verse because people need the the sugar. You're, You're going to say something? I was going to talk to you, you brought up about the mind fluctuations. Mm-hmm. That is the big, that's, that's the disturbing, well not the disturbing, but that's the, that's the issue. It's not the body, it's not the noises, it's, 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 it's the mind fluctuation. Uh-huh. Yoga is the calming of the mind fluctuation. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And through the calming of the mind fluctuation, yeah. this is how, this is how the revelation comes, with the practice mm-hmm. of slowing down the mind fluctuation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You brought that up. Sure. Yeah. Um, maybe. 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 Let me read you something. Um, this comes from the great Indian philosopher Shankaracharya. Um, Shankaracharya is probably one of the most famous philosophers in the non-dualistic Indian tradition. And um, he wrote a whole... Uh, series of passages about practicing asana. And um, in his teachings on asana, he talks a lot about bandhas and about the mind. And here's this little... um, Here's this subtle interpretation of the second line of the Yoga Sutra, which most of you know as Yoga Chitta Vritti Nirodha. 
But listen to how he describes it. By making the vritti, so what's the vritti? The The fluctuation. By making the fluctuation a present pattern to meditate upon. Okay? So not making it a distraction, but allowing the vritti to be the present pattern of meditation and then intuiting it to be sacred. In other words, not saying this is not pure. (laughs) By intuiting it to be sacred, which is another way of saying by accepting it, there is a complete forgetting of the vritti in the wisdom known as samadhi. Let's go through that again. By making the vritti, so by making this fluctuation in the mind, the pattern that you notice, and intuiting that pattern to be sacred, which is in a way like saying, there's no outside. This is what's here at this particular moment. So this is sacred. Intuiting it as sacred, because it's not inherently sacred, the mind is just saying, okay, let's allow this to be sacred. In other words, let's not make a box where this is inside or outside. Um, Allowing it to be. So noticing this modification in the mind, this elaboration, even if it's an aversion, um, and allowing it to be sacred, then we become wise because we see that this is samadhi. And the word samadhi, of course, means um, integration or uh, intimacy. That there's intimacy here. There's these sounds. This is what's arising. There's your particular body, which can't manifest right now in any other way. This is how you manifest right now. Billions of years, what do they say, 12 billion years of evolution? Culminates in this moment with us. Can't be another way. It doesn't mean that you're destined to be something. It just means that this is how you are now. This is what you have to work with. This is an important, um, not sleight of hand, but an important twist in the way we normally think of the chitrabhittis as something we've got to like somehow get a handle on. But can you get a handle on all this sound, really? Could you stop, if you tried to stop traffic here on Denver? I don't think so. If you're driving something, you have like an itch that you can't, and if you fight it, and you're like, you get mm-hmm. agitated by it, it just gets worse and worse, and yeah. you just go, okay, I've got something on my back, then it mm-hmm. tends to just go away. 
Now yeah. go away, but it's, it's, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I remember when I was first giving talks and uh, Richard Freeman said, you know, you shouldn't prepare too much. Um, so I said, well, what, what should I do? <laughs> and, um, which was fine for me anyways, because I don't really prepare anyway. Um, and he said, oh, just, you know, look around the room and talk about what's already happening. So again, drish, to look around, to see. And in a way, when you're teaching yoga, um, you don't need to be an expert in physiology, in philosophy, in Sanskrit, um, but you need to have a practice where you have the skill of being able to notice what's actually happening. And you know, this is a hard skill because sometimes, especially when we're learning about teaching in our first years of teaching, we think we need to know stuff. And then you go into the room with all your knowing stuff, and then you can't actually pay attention to what's happening in the room. Or maybe, just physically speaking, you have a really good set of adjustments for downward-facing dog. And then you practice downward-facing dog. And then you go around and you adjust everybody with your three tools. <laughs> and But you can't see the people who don't need that tool. So there's a constant refinement that's taking place in our practice and in our teaching, which is a kind of practice, which is infused by the wisdom of knowing. Knowing, I mean knowing in your liver and in your eyes and in your teeth that nothing's hidden. There's a wonderful Quaker book that's called There Is Another World, but it's this one. (laughs) So, um, we look at this floor and we really take in this floor. We listen to the sound and we really allow the sound to be here right now. You know, it was interesting, before I came here, we lived next door to a Hindu temple, and so today there's a big parade down the street. And in the parade, they uh, have four rows that are about eight people wide, where they prostrate down the whole street. So it almost looks like a sun salutation. All the way down onto their belly, over and over, down the whole street. And those people are chanting while they're prostrating. And, you know, really they end up in kind of a pretty deep zone. If anybody here has ever done prostrations, you know before. It concentrates you. And then, sort of, then there's the people beside them who are, like, passing them tea every once in a while. And then the people who have to go get the tea, usually the kids. And they're just playing and 
you know, like making jokes. Then there are people even further out to the side who just aren't even watching the prostration. They're like, you know, seeing if their car has a good parking spot on the road and, you know, wondering, you know, about the weather. And and so from the outside, when you're a block away, it looks like there's this really intense ritual and everybody must be really deep in the ritual. But then you get a bit closer and people are on their cell phones and... Some people are really meditating in it, other people are. But the whole thing is uh, the ritual. And yet, somebody might have this idea that, oh, that's not a ritual, because that's not deep meditation. Someone's on the cell phone. Doesn't belong. Just like in your body. Maybe you have this idea that there are certain um, sensations that you feel sometimes that don't belong. I don't want to feel those emotions. Or maybe you have a yoga practice and you say, oh, there's these certain things that are in my life that um, those are really not spiritual. That's, that, that's not, here's my practice. And then there's those other things. Can we turn the lights up a tiny bit more? Ah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, where there's certain parts of my life where um, even with all this practice, difficulty remains. Why is this difficulty remaining? My practice is supposed to make it go away. Really, what in your life do you um, exclude from your yoga practice? Where, you know, really, you know, you you could kind of make a list of what is part of your practice and what's not part of your practice. When I hang out with these friends, I'm spiritual. When I hang out with these friends, I'm, you know, an alcoholic. Or <laughs> so you, you really shouldn't take these teachings um, and believe in any of them, you know, until you see that they're meaningful for you because they're just an articulation of what you can verify and um, not to think that there's something about these teachings that are so hidden because um, this is what religions do they always take the most um they always take one piece of the tradition and they ratchet it up to such a high level that they make it sound like you can't achieve it. Whether that's enlightenment or pure consciousness or God or, you know, the undecaying or whatever it is that we want to make that one ideal so high that you can't achieve it. 
And then that serves to disempower the practitioner because then you feel there's something you need to get. And those kind of traditions tend to um, um, appeal to the materialistic aspect of our personality that wants to actually, at some level, be in a system where you can't really attain it. And so when you're teaching yoga to keep bringing the students back to this moment and to make sure everything you're articulating is directed to this body in this room at this time and not trying to get somewhere. Even though there are certain things we need to work on because you know, our seeing is obscured. But the vritti that arises is what you pay attention to. All those distractions in the mind, that's your practice. That's not like a distraction to your practice. You can't have a distraction unless you say that's a distraction. It's not a distraction. That's the vritti that you intuit as sacred. I'm not saying that's easy, <laughs> but that's it's an empowering um, kind of philosophy or way of seeing where you're not being asked to adopt some kind of new belief system. And this goes far back in the yoga tradition, even back into the Vedas. At some points in the Vedas you get moments like this. Um, here's an example in the Rig Veda. It's from early Rig Veda, so, you know, uh, 4,000 years ago. Um, there's a debate about creation and who created the universe. And uh, so this is the end of a dialogue. Um, who really knows? Who really knows? Who here will proclaim it? When and how is it produced? Where did creation begin and how? The gods came afterwards with the creation of the universe. Who then knows when and how it arose? When did this creation begin? Perhaps it formed by itself, or perhaps it did not. The one who looks down on it in the highest heaven only he knows. Or perhaps he does not know. <laughs> this wonderful, kind of playful way of talking about creation. Um, the piece that I want to focus on here, though, is the gods came afterwards. This is a really interesting statement, which is basically saying that um, however creation occurred, which is a mystery, um, at some point the human mind comes in and makes it a mystery. right? Because we need to know, and we don't know, and we can't know. 
and the gods come in afterwards. This is a beautiful moment here in religious thinking. In this suggestion that rather than thinking of the gods creating the universe, we see that to say that there are gods requires human imagination. So the world is not the world, it's our world. Because it's the world described in human experience. So that the gods come afterwards. So there's creation, whatever that is. So you could say there's floor, and then there's the human experience of floor, which requires the name floor. So rather than thinking of the god coming first, or gods coming first, we see the gods as a human projection on what we can't know. Is this a lovely little twist? Mm-hmm. And we could say in a way that yoga is a more agnostic kind of view um, than really a theistic or an atheistic perspective. So, so to be clear about what those terms mean, you know, the atheists which are dominating the bookstores these days, mm-hmm. Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, uh, Daniel Dennett, you know, these people who are selling really popular books about the death of God their perspective is is that there is no such thing as God. This is sort of the atheist perspective. Which you would say, you know, in softer terms, is the humanist perspective. The agnostic perspective is a little bit different. It's saying, instead of saying there is a God or there isn't a God, we say, what does the theory of God do for you? You know, the, the creation in human history of the idea of God has obviously served a purpose. So what does it tell us about our minds? What does having a God tell us about the nature of mind? What does needing to have a God tell us about our aspirations? What does saying the truth is around the corner tell us about how our minds function, rather than saying it exists or it doesn't exist. There's a self, there's no self. There's a soul, there's no soul. There's a God, there's no God. It's just theology and reverse theology. So agnostic is making the questions about it? Is valuing the question. Okay. Really giving value. To the so question. Saying, yes, there is a God, there is a soul. I, I feel like yeah. It's much like how yoga speaks about ethics, not so much as like a form of commandments, but as principles that are um, suggestions, not just for how to live, but expressions of what happens when we're constantly paying attention to interdependence. So rather than saying, in every situation, killing is wrong. As opposed to saying, 
in each situation there is uh, a unique experience occurring. What's right in that particular situation? Rather than this overarching idea. Which is disempowering, I think, in a certain way. So, you know, just to recap, is that if we take as the first um, kind of statement, nothing is hidden, that asks a lot of us to, to stop looking so far outside of yourself for contentment. Who are you to judge? Who are you to know what's right and what's wrong? So, to start to pay attention to what's happening in this experience. And if you really pay attention to the breath, you start to learn how the breath operates in the body. And you also simultaneously start to learn about the nature of the body. And you can't study the nature of being in a body without also noticing how your mind works. Because the mind has so many ideas about the body. And then we see that there actually can't ever be a separation between physical practice and psychological practice. That really to go deeply into the body and work with the body, you're also working with your mind. But we also know there's a way where we can just stay distracted, worrying and so on, and do a physical practice without actually paying attention to anything except what we know already. I know somebody, a good friend of mine, who um, picks really, really bad therapists. And he's always changing therapists, and he always tells me, oh, I've got this new therapist, you know, he's 80 years old, and, you know. And I said, like, you know, what's going on? How do you have this tendency of picking, like, the worst kinds of therapists? And we were talking recently, and, you know, it occurred to him that one of the reasons was that, you know, picking therapists, like people who fall asleep and stuff, was that he could just keep talking about everything he knows already. And if you can just keep talking about everything you know already, there's nothing to learn. You're not going to be touched by anything. There's no intimacy. And how much of your day-to-day was like that? How, How much did you speak with people about stuff you just know already? Yesterday at this protest, you know, we were in front of Queen's Park and the sun was shining and Queen's Park, the the building, you know that building when the sun shines on it is so beautiful. All that copper and the detail in that copper, you know, it's really gorgeous. 
And so here we were, you know, protesting mining, and I, I was enjoying the copper. That's <laughs> <laughs> how beautiful the, the copper is. And if you can't be there also enjoying yourself, then there's not much you can get done. Because the pressure of anger is too great. So all the mental states that arose yesterday were all um, sacred. Nothing is hidden. Life is outsideless. The soul is insideless. God is outsideless. There's no separation unless the mind makes the separation. I'm fond of saying that you can't roll up your yoga mat. If you think you roll up your yoga mat, and then you go out into your real life, then you've created a division in your practice where there's a practice on your mat, and that's the real practice. And then you go out into your life, and that's your life. But what if you stop rolling up your yoga mat in your own mind? And the same patience and the same concentration and the same kind of tenderness and focus that you bring to the asana practice, you also bring to the bank machine. And to the way you walk on the street out here, and the way you listen to sound, and the way you gaze, and the way you maybe also start treating people equally because you know that you can treat all the sensations that rise in the body equally. Not just the pleasurable sensations, but also the ones that are provoking, or alarming, or unbearable. Treating everything that arises in the mind-body processes equal and valid. Maybe you've broken up with somebody or you find yourself single. And then instead of going and finding another lover fast, you just take the whole world as your lover, as Joanna Macy says. Or you take everybody as your lover. Or pick a river. Or pick a particular street and let that street be your lover. Pick up the garbage on your street. Rather than all this focusing in on this particular thing is what I need <laughs> or what I love, and then this is not. You see? Nothing is separate. So, so the, sorry, the idea is kind of a stepping back from like you see the thing that you don't love step back and allow that to be there but um, but by accepting it it kind of loses its kick 
It can. I, yeah. yeah. I'm just it, trying to put it into an actual picture of an Sure. Yeah. Like today, probably goes across in chess, but you said it's chess, and it was totally distracting. Why the heat? I kept thinking it was too hot, and I was kind of worried about people, and I kept. So I wasn't focusing on anyone in particular. I was totally distracted with the heat. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think of that until now. Mm-hmm. But the idea would be okay, it's hot, try to do something about it, but you just know that you're distracted, but then come back to now, or just let that distraction be there and then let it follow. Sure. The other thing is, you can use your distraction in your own mind uh-huh. in that particular moment as something to. Um, inspire what you're teaching in the room. Because you know, most likely, that everyone else in that room is, or has been sometime in that hour, distracted also. Maybe for them it wasn't heat, or maybe it was. Maybe it was something else. Chitta vritti. It's constant. So, in your own working with those particular chitta vrittis, those particular distractions, you're practicing. And to articulate that, you don't have to say something like, oh, I'm distracted right now. (laughs) But you can also say, notice distraction in the mind. Whatever that distraction is about. Again, just speak about what's happening. Look around the room. Open your eyes. And you can't learn that in teacher training. Because you can only learn that through lots and lots and lots of practice. Enough practice that you start to see that nothing's hidden. Because you see that the need to have something hidden is a need to create a me that has to achieve something. Exactly. Yeah. Which is still creating the yeah. story about achieving that or, or it being more simple or, or being enough is a very scary place to be because yeah. there's all this responsibility that comes along with that. I think that's yeah. what's so attractive about sort of systems where there is something unattainable mm-hmm. because it's always, well, yeah, but I'm not that or yeah. I haven't gotten there. Yeah. There's a reason why I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I teach a lot of workshops, and sometimes the way a workshop can go is that we can really be working on some part of yoga teachings where there are like lists. There's a lot of lists, four of these and eight of these. (laughs) And there's a way where you can see the group gets really focused when we're going through lists. But sometimes at the end of lists, there can be this feeling that you need to get get something. And when we don't work with the language of lists, it kind of can drop people more into the sense of uh, responsibility. Exactly what you mean, responsibility. And I actually 
uh, really enjoy seeing a group that is frustrated by not having a list because of the responsibility that shows up. And what it does is it makes you responsible not just for practice, but for actually affecting change in your life, in your community, in the ecological web that we call life, the natural world. So you see that these sounds are, the, this is the natural world. You know, everything that's moving through the mind is natural, natural world. Wherever there is mind, there is life. And wherever you have life, you have mind. The, the tree, the leaf on the tree falls at a particular time. The bear gets up at a particular time of year and knows when to go outside. That's mind. We grow these great beets in our garden that have rings in them. These nice heritage seeds that we get from BC. And we have these amazing huge beets that we grow that have these rings in them. And those rings are the moon cycles. Every month they, they grow and they make a ring of moon cycle. And that is mind. But in human form, the mind takes uh, its pattern differently than for the beat. You see? And one aspect of mind are all these chitta-vrittis. But when you see them just as another aspect of the natural world, they're not something to get rid of. You see? Why are we trying to get rid of all these things about ourselves? Well, every time you think you need to get rid of something about yourself, you create a new ego. Or you try to get rid of your ego, and then you create a new ego that's gotten rid of the ego. (laughs) And they just grow all over the place, like some bad vine or hydra's head or something. (laughs) And this is a phase of practice, too. I think there's a phase of practice where there's a lot of inflation. Like maybe you let go of something really big and then you start thinking of yourself as like, oh, I practice, you know. This practice is working and you start telling people, you know. And then you find yourself in a crisis again and then you go, okay. (laughs) Or you go through some major transformation. You know, maybe you go through a transformation and you don't see maybe your community for a couple of years. And then you come back, and nobody can tell. <laughs> you can't see it on the outside. Maybe you really struggle, and you finally arrived at some really deep wisdom or insight. Maybe you've been on a three-year retreat, and then you come here tonight, and nobody can tell. Because <laughs> you can't tell from the outside. In all traditions, they always say, you know, how could you tell if someone was enlightened? I want to read another little passage. How's your attention span? Do you want to take a break for a few minutes, or do you want to keep going? 
I would love a glass of water. Mm-hmm. <coughs> um, this is this is really one of my favorite texts on yoga, and actually, you know, there just is not a good translation, so it's hard to recommend it. But um, this is from a text called the Yoga Vasishta. Um, you probably know the pose named after Vasishta, Vasishtasana. You know that pose? Yeah, usually holding a toe, balancing on one arm. It's like a side plank. Yeah, it's very popular in yoga magazines these days. <laughs> See people in that. What's that? It's just on the like sorry, the magazine store. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 As soon as it gets on the cover of the yoga journal, then you have to start practicing that pose. (laughs) (laughs) Poses can get too popular. Um, One, one, this, you know, I'll I'll stall a bit, but the, the, this text, the Yoga Pasishta, is really one of the most imaginative texts. Most of the text happens as dream sequences. And um, it was a text that was written, um, well, nobody knows, but it's, it's a medieval text. And um, it was an attempt to bring the yoga and Buddhist traditions together in a way that wouldn't offend either of them. Thank you. I want to read just a little passage here um, about um, the nature of the mind and the breath and body. In, in accordance with its divert... Oh, no, sorry. Prana... You heard that word? Let's, use, let's, let's just translate prana for now as breathing, just to be um, simple. This, the prana is indistinguishably united with the mind. In fact, the consciousness that tends towards thinking is on account of the movement of prana, and it's called the mind. So consciousness, as it manifests because of the movement of prana, as a pattern of thinking, is called the mind. Does this make sense? There's no, there's no such thing as the mind, right? I mean, there's probably more stories in yoga about people trying to find their mind than any other kinds of <laughs> stories. There, there is no such thing as mind. This is what's happening in neuropsychology right now, right? Is that we've all thought that there's this brain, and it like somehow goes through this electricity system we call the nervous system, and attaches to the sense organs and tells the sense organs what to do. And then we realize that actually the sense organs tell the brain what to do just as much as the brain tells the sense organs what to do. And also that the movement in the brain doesn't just happen, the signals don't just go through the nervous system, they also go through all the chemicals in the body, like, for example, hormones. But the chemicals in the body don't run through particular conduits. Everything is made of chemical, right? And then you can't actually say where the brain is because you don't know 
there's not like a location that communicates with a brain. That the brain is that whole system. And so we don't know anymore what the brain is. Because it's not just this thing in your head. Does this make sense? It's that whole process. And so in the process of thinking, we call that mind. But there's no such thing as mind. It's like saying there's no such thing as the body, right? If you pay attention to sensations that are happening, there's just sensations coming and going. And then the mind says that's happening in a body. But that's not necessary. You don't need to do that. And it's actually, you can pay more attention to sensations coming and going if you stop thinking that they're happening in your body. Just like the gods who come afterwards, so does the body. Hmm. Movement of thought in the mind arises from the movement of the breath. And movement of the breath arises because of the movement of thought. Thus they form a cycle of mutual dependence, like waves and movements of current in water. Have you ever gone swimming in the ocean? So you know in the ocean, right, there's not just like a current and a subcurrent. There's a current, a subcurrent, a sub-subcurrent, a sub-sub-subcurrent, and they all move in different directions sometimes, right? Just like how the body works in a yoga posture, you can have one bone spiraling in one direction, and then another bone spiraling, like you can have the femur bone in an external rotation, and the tibia in an internal rotation, but then you can have all the skin around them spiraling in opposing directions. And so you can actually find spirals, counter-spirals, counter-counter-spirals, counter-counter-counter-spirals if you're really paying attention. And so here the suggestion is, you know, get past this notion that there's a breath moving in the body and there's a mind. The, The movement of breath is noticed by the mind. And there is no mind without the breath. (laughs) You see? You'd be dead, first of all. (laughs) And in the same way, practically speaking, if your mind is very agitated, your breath will be agitated. Right? And you all know that if you try and use your thinking to settle your mind, it doesn't work. So you go to the breath. And you really get the breath settled, is called samatha, and the mind gets settled. And so in the Yoga Pasishta, whenever they talk about mind, they talk about the breath. Whenever they talk about the breath, they talk about the mind. They're indistinguishable. The wise ones declare that the mind is actually caused by the movement of the breath, so that when we restrain the vrittis, so the turnings of the breath, the mind becomes quiet. And when the mind is not clinging to thought, the appearance of delusion ceases. The movement of prana is arrested at the moment 
when desire comes to an end in one's heart. I love that. So, again, not the best translation, but when we settle the mind and settle the breath, the heart becomes quiet because desire is not the main mode of thinking, grasping in that particular moment. And so then, the opposite is true. How do you work with grasping? Settle the breath. Settle the mind. If you're grasping for something, then you're not here. You're looking outside for something. You're trying to hold on to something. This is not renunciation. Grasping. And whether that's grasping for a god, or for a lover, or for money, or for um, the next yoga pose. Still, that mode of grasping obscures what's actually happening in present experience. Pushing and pulling at this moment. So how does this relate to your experience? Or not? Yeah. What about the act of holding the breath? Yeah. Not inhaling, not exhaling. Yeah. Would that be a, a way of balancing the breath as well? And what kind of effect? Do you mean like in pranayama? Yeah, in pranayama. Or not, yeah, in pranayama, but just sitting here. If you were to hold our breath for as long as you could. You'd die. Well, no. Until <laughs> you'd have that first reaction to inhale. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to take that first reaction to inhale. You can push past it a little bit. Mm-hmm. You're not going to die if you just push past it a little bit, right? So you're, you're going a little bit past your level of comfort because you're first, it's like that itch, right? You want to scratch it. You don't have to scratch it right away. You don't have to take that first instinct to mm-hmm. inhale. You go a little bit past that. Mm-hmm. And through pushing through that and through holding the breath, how does that, because you're, you're restraining the breathing, mm-hmm. what effect does that have on the mind? Yeah, I mean, in pranayama practices, we do this all the time where we, we practice retentions of the inhale or the exhale. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, we watch the mind flying all over the place, freaking out. And we just notice that. Mm-hmm. And then we let it go. And we do it over and over, which acts therapeutically, physically, because it reorients the pattern of the breath mm-hmm. in the mind and body. And it teaches us something psychologically, which is just to see how quickly the mind turns over ideas Mm. about what it needs to do. Um, And so that's a great practice. But, um, although it can teach us something, I don't think it can um, provide us with the really deep investigation of stillness, because there's still a lot of maneuvering going on. And that, and, and in all of the, um, descriptions of enlightenment, which I like to translate as intimacy, we find not technique of doing, but rather being. Effortlessness. And so I would say that, um, 
pranayama helps us set the mind and body up for deep insight and spontaneous meditation. At the same time, um, most of our insight comes, or our wisdom comes, our compassion comes, not through manipulating the body, but afterwards, through the effortlessness that comes when we let go of that. And the same is true when you read stories. I remember I wrote many years ago a paper about enlightenment experiences. And one of the things that was so interesting about enlightening experiences in different traditions is most of them happened when nobody was doing anything. Like somebody is just about to fall asleep, and right before they put their head on the pillow, they wake up. And actually you see this a lot in um, Buddhist meditation form, where a lot of people have their insights not when they're sitting, but as they're getting up to do walking meditation. Or as they hear the bell ring and they're going to go eat something. Because that's when the effort, because you're not thinking. And then in that space, something new occurs. But try it, you know, hold your breath and um, try not to hurt yourself. <laughs> but it, it's there's too much manipulation there for you to pay attention. Although it's good technique at certain times. Somebody else? Thoughts? Of the, so just the correlation we talk about um, tying in the sounds around us and there not being any disconnect with this external mm. and what you're talking about chemical flow inside, you know, the internal connection. So there's, you know, this internal flow of energy, and, um, this interconnectedness inside, and sometimes we, we, uh, we tend to, you know, I mean, we, we have this disconnect externally, and we also tend to think about this disconnect internally right. between mind and uh-huh. body and everything. Yeah. Sure. And it, and the more you make the distinction between the world out there, the more you make the disconnect internally. Because the more you make a world out there, the more you start to feel trapped in here. So, and, and again, this goes back to this notion of subject and object. That the more you make the world out there into something, then the more you feel separate. It's it's like, you know, the stories we have, for example, about other people. A lot of us sometimes, you know, we create these, um, like this gossip that sometimes we even keep to ourselves about other people. All these preferences we have get projected onto other people and we, we think we know them and why they do things. 
And it's hard to accept the fact that we're only doing that to create a self for ourselves. Because the more we decide what we know about that, the more we create this. And the paradox or the irony or the dukkha is that what we most want is connection, mm-hmm. is intimacy. And we do everything for that not to happen. Because <laughs> it's what we most fear. Because when intimacy actually occurs, there's no effort. Right? But I don't want that to happen. <laughs> because then I have to give up all my gossip about you. And if I give that up, then who am I? Because I define myself internally by how I think about you externally. Right? I follow that, but I don't I don't get why you I don't quite feel like it would be true to say you don't want intimacy really because you're trying to keep the self. I think when you feel intimate and connected with somebody, it feels really good. Why don't you feel that always? With so everything. <laughs> What's that? No, I just because they're a jerk, but I am so yeah. <laughs> They don't exist. But yeah, I know, I'm separating myself from them, and now they've done something I didn't like, so blah, blah, yeah. blah. But yeah, I want to say, I want to say that those companies buying land on the Athabasca River, you know, destroying northern Alberta, which I learned yesterday, the tar sands right now are the size of Florida. The size of Florida. I want to say that those companies are bad. But I'm buying their gasoline. You know, I'm implicated. We're interdependent. And if I didn't buy their gasoline, then that would help me in... um, um, not cooperating mm-hmm. with their agenda that I don't agree with. But I heat my house with gas. So then I would also have to not have a furnace that uses gasoline. Mm-hmm. So the point is, is not to become idealistic where you try and find the perfect little cave where you can live without causing harm, because you're always going to cause harm. Always, always, always. You can't control the consequences of all your actions. The world is imperfect. But you can take responsibility for your actions. But more important is first to recognize interdependence. And when you do, it's hard to create enemies. Because you see how you're implicated in the situation. And it becomes very hard to say those are the bad guys. It's very hard to do that. And what I was suggesting earlier is that the time we most need to do that is the place in your life that is most far away from your spiritual practice. So to look at wherever in your life you think is mostly is most not yogic, And that's exactly where you need to practice. 
because the other stuff is easy. You know? 